Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Michigan Senator Debbie Stabenow is at the center of a few hot debates in the U.S. Capitol. One on the push to renew voting rights protections for African Americans and the other about the ambitious progressive Build Back Better legislation. Stabenow will join today to talk about the debates in Washington and the likelihood that meaningful legislation will pass this year. That's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. President Joe Biden is doubling down on his push to expand and protect voting rights across the country. In fact, Biden said during a speech on Tuesday that he's willing to get rid of the filibuster in the U.S. Senate to achieve those goals. Here's part of what he had to say in Georgia on Tuesday. I believe that the threat to our democracy is so grave that we must find a way to pass these voting rights bills. Debate them. Vote. Let the majority prevail. And if that bare minimum is blocked, we have no option but to change the Senate rules, including getting rid of the filibuster for this. Now, this push comes as Republicans continue to push lies about widespread voter fraud that, of course, does not really exist. And they continue to pass state laws across the country that are meant to restrict access to the ballot box. Think back to November of 2020 and the massive, massive turnout in cities like Detroit that helped put President Joe Biden over the top. Republicans are fearful that we will continue to see the expansion of voter rolls and the expansion of people showing up to vote. And we all know when that happens, their party is less likely to win. This all comes just a little over a year since former President Donald Trump and his followers actually tried to stage an insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, which was meant to stop the peaceful transfer of power after that 2020 presidential election. And all of that is just to say the stakes here are really high on both sides. 50 years, more than 50 years after the Voting Rights Act passed in Washington, we are still arguing over who should have the right to vote. How should those rights be protected? And is expansion of the franchise, more people registering, more people showing up to vote, is that a virtue of democracy, as Democrats seem to be saying? Or is that a danger to, to democracy, which is what a lot of Republicans are saying? Here to talk with us about this renewed effort around voting rights and the possibility that Democrats might end or change the filibuster in the U.S. Senate is one of Michigan's two U.S. senators. Debbie Stabenow is the senior senator here from the state of Michigan. She joins us now to talk about it. Senator Stabenow, Happy New Year and uh, welcome back to Detroit Today. Well, Stephen, it's really wonderful to be with you. Um, Happy New Year, uh, and I hope everybody is uh, doing everything they need to do to stay safe. So it's, it's, it's always good to be with you. Yeah, it's always great to have you here. So let's start with your reaction to what President Biden said on Tuesday. Pretty tough speech. The second pretty tough speech I've heard him make this year, 2022. Uh, there's a different tone to this, uh, to this presidency right now. What do you, what do you make of it? Well, I think the president is exactly right. Um, he'll be coming to our caucus today uh, at noon and looking forward to having a chance to talk with him again. I think what you said really needs to be emphasized and we need to really take a step back in Michigan. The big picture is in 2018, citizens, not elected officials, 
put on the ballot some changes to actually give us more choices to be able to vote, to be able to vote absentee, even if you're under age 65 or are not going to be out of town on election day. And so a number of changes. And in 2020, we used those. And uh, thank goodness, I mean, there was a pandemic, and so more people needed to vote absentee. Uh, we used those freedoms uh, that had been voted on by the public in Michigan. And we had an election at the state level. I mean, there were Republican members of Congress who won, Democratic members, local officials, both sides. But Donald Trump lost, and Joe Biden, Kamala Harris won. And this is all about the fact that he didn't want to lose. I mean, it's never fun to lose, right? Mm -hmm. So he decided every other level of government of the election was accurate, but his. Mm -hmm. And so this started the big lie, and they have... It, it was horrifying to be here January 6th and to, to be a part of what was happening to physically and violently overturn the election, to stop the election. But that's not enough. In every state, including ours, they're trying now to restrict our choices, to take away our freedom to vote. So the action in D.C. that we're in the middle of is to pass national law that sets up standards and uh, and enforces those so that individual folks, and in every state it's all Republican, not one Democrat voted for it, not one. And so these are Republican efforts to make it harder to vote, take away your freedom, and to change the election officials, which is already happening uh, in Michigan, so that the folks that certify this will do what Donald Trump and the Republicans want in 2024. So it's not an exaggeration mm -hmm. to say this is fundamentally uh, turning our democracy and our constitution on its head. And it's, you know, regardless. I mean, the, the folks voted in Virginia uh, just a couple of months ago using uh, the rules that have been used in 2020. When Joe Biden won president in Virginia, and then they just elected a Republican governor. I mean, that's the way it works. <laughs> and, and if you don't like, you know, that, that you lost an election, go out and work harder. You know, convince people you ought to be the one they vote for. Right. I mean, that's more how votes. we do it in our country. Yeah. So, so I think it it is worthwhile because so much of the coverage of this issue is about the struggle over the votes and the argument over the filibuster. Um, I think it's worthwhile to talk just a little bit about what these bills would do. Uh, how would they protect? voting rights better than what we have now? And how much strength would they add to the Voting Rights Act, which, as I pointed out in the open, uh, is something that we're still trying to fully implement 50 years, 50, 55 right. years uh, right. Right. After, after it passed in the 1960s. So, so talk just a little about what these bills are. Well, the bills, well, the Freedom to Vote Act, fundamentally just sets up a structure for voting nationally. And this is something that is, you know, under the Constitution, federal government sets up the, uh, the rules. And it would make sure, for instance, that if you're requiring photo ID, which is fine, that it, you have to broadly allow a number of different kinds of photo ID. In the states, uh, in many of the states, for instance, where they're trying to limit folks, they're allowing a hunting license, but not a student ID if you're going to college. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not even subtle. <laughs> they don't want young people to vote. They didn't like how they voted in the last election. And so, you know, set up standards for uh, what can be used in photo ID and make sure it's fair and it's broad for everyone, uh, making sure that people have uh, the capacity to ask for an absentee ballot to be mailed to them or for uh, a secretary of state or a clerk to be able to send out applications to people, uh, not the ballot, but applications. My mom, who's 95, has been voting absentee for, you know, 30 years or more. Um, under what they're trying to do in Michigan, she would, I'd have to take her into the clerk's office. She doesn't drive, so she doesn't have a driver's license, so she'd have to have a voting ID, go in, verify who she is. After getting the application for 30 years, she'd have to verify it just to get an application, hmm. not the ballot. And so <clears throat> the effort, and for seniors, what's happening in Michigan is going to have a huge impact 
on senior citizens and their capacity to vote. So this sets up national um, standards. It just makes it fair um, everywhere. And it also has a provision that regulates and addresses what's called dark money to disclose all these folks right now who don't, uh, all these businesses, all these dark money groups that can get involved in elections and we don't know who they are. Mm -hmm. And it will require transparency and disclosure. So we know who's getting involved in the elections, who's giving the big money, and we can make decisions about uh, that. And so, you know, when we're trying to lower the cost of prescription drugs and big pharma comes in to support somebody, they're using what's called dark money, so you don't have to report it. Well, we should know that. We should know who's doing that. And then the other broad thing is the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act really restores what used to be uh, the, the original Voting Rights Act allowed the Department of Justice the power to go in, if states were doing things like this, uh, to be able to challenge them or stop them. And a number of years ago, the U.S. Supreme Court said, there's not any discrimination anymore, we don't need this, and they eliminated the enforcement. So there's not the watchdog now, even though the Department of Justice knows that these things are going on. And some of these, I mean, it's just amazing to me. In Georgia, you've all you, you've heard this, but, um, you know, they're saying, if you're standing in line, nobody can give you water or some food. Right. And so they, they create long lines, so there's fewer places to vote, uh, fewer places to drop off your ballot, um, fewer hours in terms of the, the voting time. So setting up long lines on purpose, and then saying, oh, no, the groups, church groups, you know, other folks, whoever, they want to go out and hand out body water because it's August and it's hot. No, 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 that's against the law. Now, how does that make any sense? I mean, that's so blatant about what they're trying to do. Yes. Um, it's, it's, you know, and, they're, and they believe right now that they can just do it because uh, unless we – uh, modify the rules of the Senate. So we go back to majority rule, not supermajority. Filibuster is a supermajority. If we don't go back to the, what the founders of the Constitution said was, you know, one person, one vote, majority vote, then right now they got Mitch McConnell protecting them. And they feel very uh, confident that they can do all kinds of things that on the face of it are ridiculous and, and really outrageous. Yeah. Yeah. I'm talking with uh, Senator Debbie Stabenow, a Democrat from here in Michigan, and we're talking about the turn by the Biden administration to focus on renewal, reinvigoration, really, of the Voting Rights Act, uh, an issue that uh, the president talked about during his campaign and it came up uh, many times last year during his first year in office. He says he says now that he not only wants this legislation to pass, but that he's willing to get rid of the filibuster, a very old institution in the U.S. Senate, uh, in order to get it passed. Uh, that that institution requires supermajorities rather than bare majorities to get many kinds of legislation passed in the, in the Senate. Uh, Republicans are standing in the way of this uh, voting rights legislation uh, because, uh, because they oppose the idea of further protections uh, for voters. Uh, we want to hear from you during this uh, conversation. Uh, do you think Democrats in Washington are doing the right things to protect voting rights? What do you think of this turn by the Biden administration to really focus on this issue uh, right now? Do you think that we will be able to pass these laws? Do you think we ought to reconsider things like the filibuster in the U.S. Senate uh, as a way to get this legislation uh, into, into place? Uh, or, or do you worry about the idea of eliminating the filibuster because – that would allow uh, the other party, the Republicans, who are not in power right now, uh, but of course will be someday, it would allow them to do whatever they wanted to do with bare majorities. Uh, are you willing to live with those kind of consequences, or do you think that it's not worth taking that chance? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313 313- Five seven seven one zero one nine. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we will try to work you into the conversation 
that way. Uh, Senator, before we get to, to listeners, I, I do want to give you a chance to talk about the filibuster. This is you know, an issue that's been around for a long time in terms of uh, people talking about reforming it. First, I want to know whether you support the president's idea to get rid of the filibuster in order to pass this legislation. But I also want to have you talk some about um, other other ideas. And there's a there's a really wonderful Twitter comment here that I'll that I'll read. Uh, Big Neo says, "What if we return to the verbal filibuster? Elected officials had to stand up for the record and explain their objections and hold the floor uh, for you know for for sometimes not just hours but days in order." To stop votes on uh, on important legislation, uh, Big Neo says American citizens need to know what is in their thought process. Uh, they also also shared definitions are key. We need to speak the same language. Uh, so so talk about the filibuster, uh, Senator, and and what you think about it. Sure. Well, first of all, Big Neo is absolutely right. Um, this the whole idea of. Uh, the filibuster has gotten so warped. Not only is it used now in everything, but, you know, we used to have to stand up on the floor and talk. And um, as long as you were talking, you could stop things from happening. Or if you and then other colleagues kept talking, you could do that. And it was very clear what you were doing. It was only uh, when uh, uh, that the Senate was trying to figure out, so how do we, how do we stop this at some point, that they began to put a number on. Well, if 67 members said uh, they wanted to vote to stop it, you could stop it. And then the number went to 60, which it is right now. But the problem is, you know, I can uh, call into what's called the cloakroom in the, in the Senate and say, I object to a bill, which is essentially a filibuster. And boom, I don't even have to go to the floor to do that. I don't, I, and, and I don't even have to say that I'm doing it. I mean, we're trying to change rules so at least you have to know who's objecting and you should have to physically be on the floor and frankly you should have to talk the talking filibuster was what was originally intended and i think it's important in looking at our history when has it been used over our history because you know hamilton who we all know a lot about now Mm -hmm. uh, was very eloquent about the fact that our constitution says majority vote not super majority we can't have the tyranny of the minority. People will lose confidence in government if we can't get things done that the majority of people want to have done. And so, but originally it was rarely used. It was, it came about originally under slavery, debating slavery, then civil rights movement, and then it was activated all the time under President Obama. And so what is the, what's the connection there? It's always been tied to race. And so here we are again. It's gone farther than that now because they're trying to block everything President Biden's doing and so on. But there's always an element, voting rights. They're willing to change to a 50-vote threshold uh, to be able to deal with the debt ceiling mm-hmm. on you know, the economics of the country, but not on freedom to vote because of, of what that means in terms of uh, allowing everyone in the country to vote. And, and it fundamentally comes back over and over again, uh, issues of race. So um, it's a rule. It's not in the Constitution. Sure. In fact, it goes against the Constitution. So we need to fix it. I'm fine with, let's say you got to talk. And, you know, the other side, we, we'll set up, uh, you know, but that's what we've been proposing to our colleagues, that, so, that um, you give everybody the opportunity to talk as long as they want. But when you're done, you have a vote. And it's a majority vote. So I wonder if that would be enough, though, to get what Democrats want here. I mean, if, if, if you change the rules that way, do you think this would pass? Well, if, if we know we have 50 Democrats plus the vice president who, mm-hmm. who will vote, yes. So if we can get to a vote that's a majority, simple majority, um, we do have the votes to do that. And that's one of the things we're discussing with our um, Democratic colleagues. I mean, we have 50 Republicans voting no, no matter what we do. Right. And we have two Democrats who don't want to change the 60-vote threshold. So we're uh, discussing, so, okay, let's just keep the filibuster, but go back to the way it was supposed to be, go back to the way it was in the very beginning. And so we'll see. Um, Intense uh, meetings, conversations going on literally almost every minute right now. 
Um, and, and you know, all of fails, we will be voting on Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Day on Monday, and um, and and we will see. Yeah. We'll see what happens. Yeah. I, I want to take one quick call before we have to let you go, Senator. Uh, Chris in Berkeley. Chris, go ahead. Hey, um, I just wanted to, you know, bring up the the idea that uh, it's a bit concerning of a time. And I think, you know, I'm concerned uh, that we're not quite at the point where um, it's okay to just give over the entire uh, or eliminate the filibuster entirely, uh, considering how gerrymandering is played into this country's makeup um i'm you know i'm concerned about it being used by the opposite side of politics in a very negative way in a time where you know the most wild things are going on in our country and you know we're seeing this so i was wondering if you know the senator sees a nuanced approach where some things are filibuster you know proof and some things are not um so that's what i want to answer sure great question Chris. chris you chris you raise a really good point that we talk about uh, a lot. And um, what we're talking about right now is essentially being called a carve-out in some way for uh, fundamental issues that are structural. I mean, your freedom to vote is really not about an issue one way or another. It's, a, it's fundamental to the democracy. And so, um, you know, looking at um, ways to, to deal with that. I will say this, after um, working with Mitch McConnell um, for years, if Mitch wants to change the rules for anything they want to do, he's going to do it anyway. That's he did true. it for judges last time. Yes. Uh, the only reason he didn't do it, I think, for legislation is that he likes to keep the filibuster and blame us for them not passing some of the things that are so extreme. You know, he doesn't want to pass them, but he wants to blame us for not passing them. And so, uh, I, I really think, you know, most importantly. These are. This is about fundamental to the democracy. Are we going to let folks not just do gerrymandering, but actually limit people's uh, freedom to vote in a way that we won't be able to take this. We won't be able to have fair elections going forward. Uh, but we also need to realize that Mitch McConnell, you know, he, he has one rationale for holding up Merrick Garland. And he has another rationale for Amy Coney Barrett. I mean, he will he will create whatever rationale he wants at any moment to get what he wants. Yeah. And that's what that's what we're dealing with. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Senator Debbie Stabenow, it's always great to have you here with us to talk about these things. And uh, good luck with uh, with Thank all you. of this uh, all this machination in, in Washington to get a vote on uh, this important voting rights legislation. Thanks yeah. for being here. And may, may I also say, Stephen, that there are the Republicans are out right now trying to subvert uh, uh, you know, the, the governor's vetoes by getting petitions signed that uh, will put all these bad things, you know, in a, a position where the legislature can pass them without the governor's veto. Please don't sign it. If these, if these folks are out there talking about it, the, the only thing out there on petition right now are things that would take away your freedom to vote. Yeah. And so... No matter and, what somebody says right now, please don't sign these petitions. That's right. And always, if somebody comes up to you and asks you to sign a petition, read it. Read it really carefully yeah. before yeah. you sign or decide not to sign. I mean, I think don't take somebody's word for what it says. Exactly. Look at what it says. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Always great to be with you. Yes, great to have you here as well. Up next, we are going to hear about a new book that tells the story of a group of libertarians who sought to create a small government-free utopia and how it was all foiled by bears. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining. Political identity and the ways we describe the way we see the world are changing a lot right now in America. On both the right and the left, the doors have kind of flung open 
to acceptance of ideas and structures that once were political taboo. Socialism, calling yourself a socialist, for instance, no longer carries the kind of stigma it once did. And in fact, some data suggests a majority of young people under the age of 30 consider themselves socialists. The political right has shifted as well, with a lot of people now openly defining themselves as more economically populist and racially nativist. But the big question, I think, behind all of that change is, how far would you go to show how much you embrace your political beliefs? Would you move to a community, for instance, where your beliefs were going to rule the day? And if you did, would you really be happy there? Really, what we're getting at is what the limits are of the possibilities for communities organized around a set of common political beliefs or ideas. I think for a lot of us, the idea of those things is really intriguing. But if we were ever confronted with the opportunity to live that way, would it work for us? Would we be happy? A new book chronicles what happened when a group of libertarians, conservatives who believe that just about any government restriction in personal freedom is unnecessary, decided to make the town of Grafton, New Hampshire, a utopia for their beliefs, a place where local taxes and ordinances essentially wouldn't exist, and absolute individual freedom could prevail. What happened next was, quite literally, wild. Matt Hongoltz-Hetling is an international journalist, and his first book is titled A Libertarian Walks Into a Bear, and it is about the libertarian utopian experience in Grafton, New Hampshire. Matt, welcome to Detroit Today. I am very excited to be here. Uh, uh, great to talk to you, Stephen. Yes, I'm really excited to have this conversation. I have uh, read a good bit of your book, and it is not just entertaining, but uh, as I was saying in the open, it really raises these important questions of how dedicated we all are to the things we say we believe. So let's start here. This is around 2004 when a group of people choose Grafton, New Hampshire as the spot for their libertarian utopia. Tell us how that came into being and why people chose this place as the epicenter of this Freetown project. Yeah, I, I love your opening framing because that is spot on. Like libertarians, they just they're a very abstract set of principles, right? Like uh, the libertarians of the world realized uh, around 2004 that they didn't have a libertarian country that they could point to or a libertarian state, uh, and they didn't even have a libertarian city. And so they really thought, you know, boy, if we could just put our principles into practice, uh, people would see this shining jewel <laughs> of a libertarian utopia. Uh, and, and everyone then, would want know, it. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone would want it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our, our ideas will spread. Exactly. Um, and so what they did was uh, they started this kind of uh, online discussion on uh, freedom forums, you know, internet forums devoted to their ideals. And they decided, hey, why don't we all go to one place and start a utopian community for ourselves? But we don't have... Uh, startup money. We, we don't have any capital to, to build a community from the uh, ground up. So let's go to somebody else's community and uh, take that. And so the idea was if they picked a small enough town and they got enough libertarians to move there, well, then they would constitute a majority and they would be able to shape the town to their, uh, to, to their will. Uh, and so they did a national search. Uh, pretty quickly, they zeroed in on the state of New Hampshire, which as the uh, very independently minded live free or <laughs> live die free or state. Die, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, I think it's the only state where you don't have to wear a seatbelt, Stephen. Um, so, <laughs> you know, uh, 
you, you can see the appeal. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, they, they have favorable tax situations and, and that sort of thing. And then they went around to, uh, uh, after settling on New Hampshire, kind of a, a scouting party of libertarians uh, that, that was uh, included a mail-order bride business owner uh, named Zach Bass. Uh, they started scouting uh, New Hampshire and they visited a couple dozen communities looking for the perfect place. And they settled on this town of Grafton, which is uh, about an hour from my home in Vermont. Um, and they liked it in part because it had no zoning regulations, uh, which meant that there was nothing to govern what sort of a living situation somebody could be in. You know, zoning, zoning ordinances, uh, in, in truth, they can get out of control, right? And so they, they are zoning law phobic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then... Uh, the other great appeal was that Grafton had this very deep, deep history of uh, tax avoidance and, and, you know, kind of like defiance against the government dating back even into the, the late 1700s when they voted to secede from the United States, uh, which had only recently been formed. <laughs> so like, you know, Grafton was their kind of place and uh, soon they let everyone know that this was uh, the the place to come, and libertarians started pouring into this little town from around the country. And what what happens next is in the book, of course, uh, it, it's quite funny, uh, and it's written in a really entertaining way. Um, but it also is an important lesson in this idea of. Uh, in this idea of the limits, I guess, of the the virtue of this kind of thinking. I mean, as I said in the open, we all uh, in some ways believe that the way we see the world is the right way. And if we could just be with other people who saw the world that way, everything would be all right. Um, and the, the folks who do this in Grafton in a number of different ways learn um, – <laughs> learned that that's just not uh, that's not that's not so. So tell us what happens when they get to Grafton and decide to implement this uh, libertarian utopia. Yeah, yeah, and again, that's great framing because it is like it's not unique to libertarians. Like we're we're all pretty silly creatures, right? <laughs> um, and uh, it just so happens that that particular flavor of uh, of silliness. Um, uh, can really uh, uh, get out of control, uh, or, or you know, rather, society is meant to, I think, kind of give us checks against one one another. Um, and so, what happened was, uh, as they started moving there, you can imagine the sort of person who is willing to pick up roots, go to a random town in New Hampshire with, uh, and Grafton is very very small community. It's got no industry, no retail shops. Uh, it's basically just a very small collection of uh, municipal buildings uh, in the middle of the woods with a bunch of houses, you know, it's kind of scattered throughout that woods. And the folks who were willing to come there tended to be, you know, very idealistic, uh, young white males uh, who didn't necessarily have a job or a family to keep them where they were. Um, and when they arrived... Uh, they couldn't go the traditional route of buying a house, uh, many of them. And so they started to live in these kind of makeshift uh, living arrangements. Uh, they, they would live in yurts and cabins in the woods and, uh, you know, trailers and uh, even tents. And so what happened was off in the woods of Grafton, this kind of a chain of encampments just kind of started to materialize on the land. And because there was no zoning requirement, nobody could do anything about it. Uh, and, and the people of Grafton kind of flipped out. They said, you know, what is going on here? Uh, <laughs> and they found a website that the libertarians had created to dedicate to the project. And Zach Bass, the, the uh, mail order bride business owner, and that actually wasn't even his real name, it turned out. It was his, his uh, alias because um, he, he didn't want to be tied to his criminal past. Um, but uh, the website that he put up stated out like this kind of libertarian manifesto where they declared their intent to, you know, uh, uh, avo- get rid of all the rules about certain actions to assert their rights to things like um, 
uh, drug dealing and organ dealing. You know, they thought you could you should be able to buy and sell human organs. They thought that you should be able to organize uh, bum fights, hmm. which is a, a term for, you know, paying indigent people to fight each other mm-hmm. for your entertainment. Uh, they thought you should be uh, able to engage in consensual cannibalism if you so choose. And then they thought this was an important right that that one should go out and publicly assert. Uh, so it was very, very much like the extreme end of what was already a pretty extreme ideology. Yeah, yeah. So uh, what happens when this kind of clash of these idealists and the people who already live in this town uh, unfolds? Uh, how how do they how do they come to resolve it? And then, of course, tell us about the bears. The bears play <laughs> such a pivotal role in this story, and they're unlikely characters, but they end up being <laughs> very important ones. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. So the uh, first question: uh, they never quite constituted a majority of the town, but they found enough kind of pre-existing quirky and or fiscally conservative people to achieve a lot of their goals, uh, and so they. They managed to really crimp the Grafton town budget very, very tightly to the extent that, you know, road maintenance could not get done. The police, there's only one full-time police officer, the police chief in the town of Grafton. He had to get up at town meeting and admit that he couldn't do patrols for a period of time because his car was not road safe and he couldn't afford to repair the car. Mm. Uh, the, the patrol car, uh, you know, just like everything kind of just started going to uh, pot. Uh, so that was that was bad. Um, but then uh, uh, you asked about the bears. And you know, you, you'll be interested to know that when I started uh, researching this book, I did not uh, care about the libertarians. Uh, I I came to the town of Grafton because there was a lot of weird bear stuff going on. And I wanted to know why that was. Mm. Um, now, when you say and, weird bear stuff, what do you mean? <laughs> I mean bears that were unusually aggressive and unusually interested in people. So uh, I was there interviewing a Vietnam-era war veteran uh, for an unrelated issue in my role as a uh, local journalist. Oops, sorry. Uh, and um, the uh, veteran told me that a bear had come out of the woods and stolen her cats, you know, eaten her cats in front of her, basically. And I'd never heard of that. And so that made me start, and she claimed that the bear population had suddenly increased dramatically and that the bears were very, very bold. Um, And so I started looking into that and other residents told me about bears, you know, pushing their way into their homes, um, uh, you know, attacking their sheep, uh, just uh, doing all sorts of things that you wouldn't want a bear to do. Uh, and so then I started asking, yeah, I kind of back-ended into the libertarian thing. I said, what else is unusual about this town? <clears throat> and um, the answer was uh, the, this uh, utopian project called the Freetown Project. And then I started to see the connections between these two things. And... The 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 bears are symbolic as well in the story. I think uh, in a way that maybe was was unexpected. Um, I mean, they're they're a disruption, of course, in the town, and they're disruptive to the libertarian ideals as well. But I, I, I get the sense that for you, they they have deeper meaning. In, in some way. Is that right? <laughs> well, 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 one answer to that is that the bears are symbolic right up until the moment that they're pushing their way in through your screen door window. <laughs> well, while you're sh- <laughs> and at that point, they become very concrete. Yeah, right. That's not, um, that's yeah. not imagery. <laughs> that's yeah. real, right. <laughs> but, yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely correct. Um, bears, um, you know, we project a lot of human ideas onto bears. And what I, I found is that um, – you know, bears are kind of a blank canvas. And when we, we project our human culture onto them, that can actually impact the behavior and the experiences of those animals in a real way. And bear management 
is a real issue, but it's also kind of like such a, a quirky issue that you don't usually think about it in terms of of hardcore politics. And so in that sense, like it, it became this really kind of great um, uh, you know, pack horse to, to carry all of these ideas and, and information on. Um, and the reason that the bears got out of control is that I described all these libertarians living in these uh, odd living situations. <laughs> and so that was having a couple of impacts. One is that they weren't listening to the government regulations and recommendations about um, you know, hygiene and food disposal. Mm. And so they were leaving food uh, around these little encampments <clears throat> and their garbage in these encampments in ways that started to attract bears and get, uh, get the bears interested. And the second big factor was that uh, in most places, uh, even in live free or die New Hampshire, uh, if you have a bear problem, you call the game warden's office and they send somebody out to kind of assess the situation and nip the, the problematic bears in the butt. You know, and that could mean trapping and removal. That could be shooting <clears throat> and killing. Or that could be just uh, telling somebody, hey, the reason this bear is acting aggressively is because you're leaving your bird feeder out at the wrong time of year. <laughs> and that's sending the bear the wrong message. Uh, but because the libertarian community was so anti-government, you know, they're certainly not going to call the state to resolve a bear problem. Uh, they're going to handle that on their own. Uh, and so this uh, population of bears uh, was breeding unchecked and getting increasingly aggressive. And some of the libertarians, in fact, were actively feeding the bears on purpose for the joy of watching them eat. Um, and so all of these things conspired to make a bear population that was much, much bolder. Um, and even though the state of New Hampshire had not had a bear attack in about 150 years, uh, several years after the Freetown Project began, <clears throat> there was a first bear attack in state history in Grafton. Um, and it's been followed by two other attacks in the Grafton area. Uh, so there's now this little cluster of uh, really frightening bear behavior uh, that, that's uh, human, human folly coming home to roost. Yeah, yeah. Okay, when we come back, we are going to continue this really wonderful conversation with Matt Hangelt-Hetling, an international journalist who has written this really wonderful book uh, about Grafton, New Hampshire called A Libertarian Walks Into a Bear. We want to hear from you as well in this conversation. Give us a call and tell us, would you want to move to a community where lots of other people or maybe all of the other people thought the way you did. If you're a socialist, would you like to create a socialist utopia somewhere in the United States? Uh, if you're a moderate Democrat, would you like to live someplace where there are just other moderate Democrats? And if you did do that, do you think you'd be happy? Do you think that would fulfill you in a way that living in a more diverse community, as most of us do, uh, is able to do? Give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. How far would you go? to embrace your political ideals? Would you move to some place that said those were the ideals that would shape governance and life in a certain place? If you're a libertarian, would you want to move to a town that was calling itself a libertarian utopia? If you're a socialist, would you want to move to some place where health care and child care and all of these 
things that uh, socialists believe should be subsidized were subsidized. And if you did make that choice, what would that feel like? What would it look like in your life? Would it make you happier? Or do you think that you might become frustrated uh, by the inability of that common political ideology to solve all of the problems that come up in everyday life? Matt Hangelt Hetling is an international journalist who's written a book called A Libertarian Walks Into a Bear. It is about such an experiment where a group of libertarians moved to Grafton, New Hampshire, thinking that they could create a libertarian utopia. It, of course, turned out quite differently than they anticipated. We want to hear from you about your ideas here. Would you do this? And if you did, would you be happy? Is this something that you maybe talk about with other people who share your political outlook or your ideology? The idea of moving away and creating a space that's just about you and your beliefs. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Big Neo on Twitter says, I consider myself to be very reasonable. Find the best solution and do right by the citizens is central in most of my political thoughts and expressions. I think I'd do okay if I were in a town with others like me. Uh, Before we get to more listener comments, Matt, I want to talk just a little about the idea of this being a libertarian experiment and whether that had much to do with the outcome. In other words, if this were... Uh, an experiment that was was centered around different kinds of political ideology, would it have turned out differently? Would it have been better or worse? I guess uh, part of the question is how much of our identity um, really determines uh, the success of being able to be in a community like this and, and make it work. Oh, wow. Well, what an interesting question. Um, yeah, yeah, I think... Part of it is a little bit unique to libertarianism because you can look around the country and the world and you can find a lot of places that already embody uh, some political philosophies, you know, pretty, pretty well. You know, if if, uh, I am a socialist and I want to live in a socialist community, I can, you know, go to Denmark or or somewhere uh, that is pretty reflective of what I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, libertarians don't really have that. And so I think um, that's part of the unique thing about their philosophy is that it's very abstract. You know, it just has not yet uh, had to meet the the road of reality. Um, and so I think as the philosophy matures and as they make successes, they are achieve successes, they will be better about becoming more practical mm-hmm. uh, about, you know, the ways they can implement this, this uh, ideology and the ways that they cannot. Yeah. And so a lot of people are libertarian leaning in some way or another, and they are delightful. And, you know, and maybe, you know, when you say you're libertarian leaning, what you mean is that you believe in the right of, you know, uh, gay people to marry uh, and have all of the legal protections that that affords. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's uh, uh, an early libertarian position that was staked out that happens to be more on the left end of the spectrum. Um, but the, the problem is when you uh, take that too far and suddenly you find out that uh, there's no road running past your house anymore because you're not paying for roads or, you know, there's a bear coming into your house uh, because you're not paying for, uh, for, for bear management. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Harper in Rochester Hills. Harper, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh-huh. Uh, just real quickly, I wanted to share a story about my experience uh, back in the 90s. I was active in the Rochester Hills City Council and would attend uh, meetings, quite frankly, and speak on topics. And there was another guy who would attend, and I initially thought, oh, he's he's very libertarian, very conservative. Boy, he's a curmudgeon. He's a crank. And I 
didn't like him for a long time. But the more I listened to him speak over the years, I realized he had a lot of wisdom, he had a lot of value, and his conservative fiscal beliefs were a nice balance for some of the rest of us who might be a little more left-leaning. And I began to realize that it was nice to have a diversity of opinion. <laughs> and that not, not everyone agrees with me, but that's good, actually. But that's okay. And I could, <laughs> that's okay. And um, so that was my experience back yeah. in the 90s. And although I'm more of a progressive thinker, I have opened my eyes to the value of a diverse population yeah, and yeah. appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> Harper, I, I love I love that story and uh, and I love that you called uh, and shared it. Matt, I, I wonder if that kind of lesson is what some of the people who moved to Grafton ended up ended up uh, embracing. Did they yeah. did they decide that look, we do need more more kinds of thought than than just our own. I, I love Harper's anecdote as well, and I think that's very a point very well taken. You know, like we we should all be celebrating, you know, personal responsibility and and some of the uh, uh, things that are at the core of of those tenets when it, when well applied. Um, but uh, as far as your question, Stephen. Uh, no, no, these guys, <laughs> these guys still are not anything. Huh? They're still hardcore, um, and you know, uh, in that sense, because they are the the folks who went to such extremes to implement it, they may have lost faith in that particular project and moved out of town. Um, but I don't think an appreciable percentage of them. Uh, change their mind about libertarianism one little bit. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think they're just looking for the next utopia. <laughs> the, the next chance to try it again. Yeah. And that's human mm-hmm. nature, isn't yeah. it? Like once you've gone all in, uh, it's pretty hard to it's hard to, to back away. Like, oh geez. Yeah. 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 Okay. Matt Hongolt Hutling. It was really great to have you here to talk about your book and uh, congrats on uh, a really wonderful tale. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It was a blast. I uh, hope to talk <laughs> to you next year. Sure. Bye-bye. Okay, that's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow. We're going to talk with one of my favorite guests here on the show, Detroit producer and writer Dream Hampton, about feminism, its past, present, and future. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow. <laughs>